1: Chris Broadbent. Six years old, maybe? I still remember how devastatingly disappointed I felt that I was no good at anything. Luckily, I had told him before he died that I would never have been Revolt without his input. That sort of thing that I think probably thousands of runners um, fantasize about when they're out by themselves on a dark
0: winter's night. (laughs) Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Today we are talking with the last British athlete to win an Olympic marathon medal, Charlie Spedding. A product of the Northeast strong running scene, he was a tough competitor on track and cross-country before finding his calling at the classic distance. As well as winning Olympic bronze in Los Angeles in 1984, he also triumphed at the London Marathon and placed third in the Chicago Marathon. Charlie, it's good to meet you. And you. Nice to be here. Good, good, good. So, tell me about your childhood then. I understand you live very close to where you grew up then.
1: Uh, yes, I am from County Durham. And uh, I actually grew up in a, an old mining town called uh, Ferry Hill. Out of my bedroom window as a child, I could see the uh, the colliery pit heap and the chimneys and the winding gear. There was an active mining town. And I live in Durham City. Uh, which is only a few miles away from there, um, which I really like. And so I've always been in the Northeast and I, I still like it.
0: Good. Good stuff. And cool. um, was run as running something you got into quite 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 quickly when you were young?
1: Um no, I I my first experience of running was a an exceptionally bad one. Um when I was young, I had uh I, I had several problems. I I was born with a um Astigmatism in one eye and a squint. And when I was three years old, I had an operation to correct the squint, and I had to go around with a a patch of my good eye to make the the weaker eye work. And um, I I blame that for being a little bit later to learn to read than other kids. Um, and I went to school and uh, uh, my junior school. Um, they had a chart on the wall which showed exactly where you were. Because there were 42 children in the class, I was always either 40th or 41st. I was never absolute bottom, but I was very close. Um, I also had very flat feet. My mother had to take me to the local hospital to see a physiotherapist to do exercises for my flat feet. Um, And I used to like playing ball games, and we'd we'd kick a ball about in in the yard at school, but I always took my glasses off I didn't want to get broken, and I could see two balls, so I was hopeless at that. So basically, I was no good academically or at any type of sport um, when I was was really young. Um, And my first experience of running was um, Sports Day at that school, um, and the only event was 100 yards. Um, Although it was some surrounding events, the only running event they had was 100 yards, and it was handicapped. And my form teacher, handicapped on height, he thought, well, All the boys probably can run faster. So in the heat I was in, I was the shortest, and I had a start among the others. I thought, oh, I can win this, I've got to run from here to there And so uh, we set off, I sprinted as fast as I could, and they all came past me and I finished last. And I still remember to the day, I was about um, six years old maybe, I still remember how devastatingly disappointed I felt that I was no good at anything. Um and I, I actually believe that was a catalyst for when I actually was introduced to longer distance running. I went to a different school later and um we did what they called cross-country. It wasn't, it was actually just a series of turnback paths, but um it was much longer. It was a much longer uh, well, it was probably a mile and a half, or well, maybe two miles. But um the first one of these we did, I, I was determined not to suffer that sort of humiliation again. So I tried as hard as I could. Most of the, most of the boys in my class, I, they ran until they were outside of the teacher and then walked. But I ran as fast as I could and I finished second. And this was the first thing where I actually uh, felt like I was perhaps quite good at it. Um, I was only running against the kids in my class in one school. And I finished second because there was a guy there who could always beat me. His name was Dennis, I remember. He could always beat me if he wanted to. And some t- when we when we did have these longer races, I would either finish first or second, depending on whether Dennis was in the mood or not. So he he was a better runner than me, just basically. Um, but he didn't always try. So okay. that was why I started to like longer distance running because up until then I'd been hopeless at everything I'd tried.
0: You obviously the glimmer of hope then did that take you to what was the bridge between going from that school experience to going to Gateshead Harriers?
1: Well um again as I got older we got into proper um proper cross country running I got onto my uh school team for that and did quite well so I was representing the school and um started winning some races against other schools and I thought this you know I really wanted to see how good I could be at this. And when I was about 15 or 16, I thought, I'm going to really try to um, be as good as I can. And that was when um, I met someone who said, you should join Getter Harry's. Mm-hmm. So I did as a 16-year-old and ran in the youth road races, um, where I came up against Mike McLeod, um, <laughs> who, who went on to <laughs> went on a lift... To win an Olympic medal at the Los Angeles Games as well in the 10,000 meters. No one would have guessed that these two kids who were running local youth road races around Tyneside were, were destined to that, and there was no sign of it. But, um, um, so I was up against someone very good straight away in my youth, um, road races. But, um, uh, yes, it never came easy, but,
0: no. Um, no. but it doesn't. What was that? I mean, was it was there a breakthrough for you in the early years? Um, no,
1: not really. It
0: wasn't. Not,
1: I mean, it was, no, it, a proper breakthrough took me till I was um, almost thirty. Yeah, yeah. I, I slowly progressed, and I had, um, I, I would. It was very frustrating. I would progress and then get injured and go back a bit progress and get injured, go back a bit. I think it's a familiar story for a lot of people. But it was very much um, my, my story. So I, I, I was getting better and better and I was um, started running some reasonable times and I I sort of mid-twenties, I got um, some occasional cross-country internationals running for England in a race in France or not that I was very good at cross-country um and hmm. occasional um track internationals where they they don't seem to do it now where they, they have uh two you know they have a GB team against France and Spain and you know two from each country and that type of thing.
2: Yeah. Um
1: and I thought this is great. I'm a national runner now, but still not um, you know, I was I was getting in the team when um the better runners were unavailable, basically.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, but I was I was making it to international level, so I thought this, you know, I, my commitment to this sport is paying off. Is what I was thinking. But I, but I also felt that I, I was there was obviously this nagging feeling that I can do better than I have done, um, and that was what motivated me to really keep going and keep going. I was for a long, long time I thought. Yeah, I'm doing all right, but I feel I can do better. And I couldn't find the way to do it. And I would I would try all sorts of different approaches, one of them being training harder. And that and I would get injured whenever I tried that, so I had to figure out how to train better. And it took me a long, a long long time.
2: Yeah.
1: To, to do that. Um and I got to about 28 years old and I was thinking, you know, time's running Running out here, and I thought I, I need to make a real commitment to this. And I reached a point where um, I did make that big commitment, and I um, I I quit my job, I, I rented out my house, uh, sold my car, and I moved to Boston in America for a year. Yeah, uh, that's a big change, isn't it? It's quite a commitment. Uh, you don't. I don't think you have to do that if you want to get better, but I. I did. I mean, I I, uh, I knew some people in Boston, that's why I went. But also, Boston was was a big centre for distance running in America at the time. Bill Rogers was there, and lots of other people.
0: So just to, just, before go, just before we get back a bit, the so through the seventies, you're very much just part of the Gateshead scene, aren't you? Very much, a, and yes. it was a dominant club at that time, wasn't it? I mean, you you go uh, to the national cross country and dominate uh, and win year after year. Were you, were, you, were you part of that team? Yes, um, yeah. I
1: was. I was. I was part of the the first Gateshead team to win the national cross country in 1973, Mm -hmm. and I was the youngest one on it. But there were people like Brendan Foster and um, um, Bill Robinson was a a top cross country, and John Kane. um, We we won that, and then we won it a few times after. And we also won the 12-stage road relay championships. Uh, I think I was in the team who won that three years in a row. so there were there were I was with national team titles I was all part of that scene so it was um, I was having lots of enjoying lots of success at a at a good level mm. without being you know top class in, in, in individual success
0: I guess unwittingly you're being you're being pulled along there because some of those English national cross countries and that the domestic competition then. I mean, you can rock up. To, let's take the, take the national, for example. You could rock up to that, and you could have you know, Dave Bedford, Steve Avet, Mike McLeod, Pininfall. <laughs> it was the, the the lineup could be ridiculous, couldn't it? It could be yeah. a,
1: yeah, a, a world class
0: athletes all over the place, you know. Yes,
1: yeah, really, really deep. Yeah. So even um, if you're um,
0: finishing twentieth or so, you're still it's <laughs> you could be a world class runner, but finishing down the field, really, couldn't you at yeah. that level? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, it like? What was it like competing in that sort of? <laughs> Well were aware of it at the time how competitive this was or
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think everybody knew that the um the national cross country championships at the time was where pretty pretty much everybody from the top fifteen hundred meter runners all the way through the top marathon runners, they all turned out. Yeah. Um and yeah, it was it was it was nine miles of cross country back then and they set off like it was a Five thousand meter race, mm. you, and you had to you had to go pretty quickly, or you'd have too many people in front of you. Uh, but you. But you absolutely mustn't go too quickly; you were in oxygen debt for the next eight miles, and um, it was quite a, it was quite a, it was a tough race. Um, but yeah, you. Um, there were, certainly in the in the first three or four miles, it was almost constantly you were passing someone, and someone else was passing you, and, and it was. Just constant, um, and then they were often on tough courses. So you were wading through mud with this, um, with this international going past you inside, and your side and you're going past the other one. Um, <laughs> extraordinary races, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but but fantastic experience and fantastic competition, um, and. Um, yeah, great, great memories. Although I was I was never particularly good at it because I the muddier the course, the worse I did. It was okay. you know, that expression horses for courses. But so it was very the best national cross country result I ever had. I finished twelfth, um, and it was nineteen seventy five at Luton when it was very very dry, and the Luton courses there's a there's one hill in it, but it's it's, it's flat grass on the top of the hill, and it's fairly flat at the bottom, you just got to go downhill, up, and uphill. It's not up and down through mud. Okay, um,
0: okay. That was so much um, and that
1: was the best, and it was very dry. So I, I was able to run the way I do on roads and track, which is kind of bouncing off the ground. I was I was never I never had the technique for running through.
0: Good. So sorry, so you so you stuck through you stuck through it through these years. You weren't you weren't really knocking on the door of championships, were you? But you stuck with it. And you made the move to America, and like you said, it was a big sacrifice, that, for you? Um,
1: it was, but I saw it, um, see, I lots of people say, oh, you must have made lots of sacrifices. And,
2: mm.
1: it, well, um, in some ways it was, but I always saw it as not another sacrifice, but an opportunity, an opportunity to do something that um, may well be beneficial. Um and and it was it was enormously beneficial. Um, I went there um, ran well. Um, well, I I've been really struggling to win a road race in the northeast of England because there was Brendan Foster, Mike McLeod, mm-hmm. um, other people like Dennis Coates, who was an international Olympic steeplechaser. Um, Steve Cram was starting to come through, and I went to. Um, to Boston, which had this huge reputation for being a running centre, and I ran uh, I ran, race of 10k, a 10k race, a five mile race, and a 10k race on consecutive weekends and won them all. And um, But I wasn't running against the very, I was against some quite well respected guys, but they weren't the very top guys. But winning three races in a row, I, I'd never done that back home in the Northeast. And it gave me a huge confidence boost, um, but also I, I also believe that making that commitment to my running actually um, it, it affected my subconscious mind in in a way that as if my my subconscious mind was saying, "Wow, he really means it when he says he wants to be the best one he can be," mm-hmm. um, and so that I feel as if making that commitment just did something. And I don't know how to describe it, other than deep inside me, that this guy is, is committed to this.
0: Good, good. And then you did start to make teams, didn't you? You made the Commonwealth Games and the Europeans over 10,000 metres. Yes. Meters. yes. Um, eighth in the Europeans in Athens and fourth in the Commonwealth. So did you, I mean, given what, what the hard work you put in, did you take these as positives or were you looking for a bit, bit more?
1: Oh, no. I, I, I was, well... Um, yeah, finishing fourth in a championship, it's, you're close to winning the medal, but I wasn't actually that close to winning the medal. Um, I, was, I was delighted with those. And actually that, that European championship, when I finished eighth, the seven guys in front of me, um, well, obviously three of them, won medals in that race, but all seven of them went on from there to win major championship medals or set world bests. Right. So that made, you know, again, an absolutely stacked field. And Steve Jones was just in front of me. Um, and Tebow from Italy, he okay. went on to win a stack of um, championship medals. Um, so that, you know, I finished eighth, but it, when you look at what those people did afterwards, it was absolutely top class field. So I was, I've always looked back and thought, well, eighth, is that any really good? Well, in that race, I, I always felt like, yeah, it was.
2: Hmm. OK, OK,
1: um, good, good. Of course, uh, I, I, was, I, I was doing well at 10K, but i never had the speed to really su- succeed, because I just couldn't, I just could not sprint fast enough to win a last lap
0: duel, mm-hmm. absolutely not. Um, so, so when did you start thinking about the marathon then? I mean, you did do the, you won the three years, 10,000 metres the next year, didn't go to the world champs. Were you on, on route to the marathon then, or...? Well, I I I had thought
1: about the marathon back in 1980 when I was in America, and because um, people were telling me, "Oh, you you've made a really good marathon runner. You, you haven't got blistering speed to win track races," but um, and so I I got in touch with my uh, really good friend and advisor, Lindsay Dunn, who has coached uh, a lot of. Um, very successful Northeast runners. Um, and he helped me enormously. And I, I wrote him a letter because that's what you had to do back in 1950. <laughs> yeah. I wrote him a letter and I waited two weeks for his reply to come back. <laughs> <laughs> people laugh at this now, but that was the height of technology. Um, and, I, and he wrote back and said, Yeah, I think you will make a good marathon in the end, but you mustn't do it now. You've got to fulfil your potential at ten thousand meters first, and this was in nineteen eighty and and I, I said yes, because then when you go at the marathon, you'll be a better runner, and so I agreed with them And um, nineteen eighty two, as you said, I I finished third in the three A's and got on the Commonwealth team and the, um, uh, European team, and then in nineteen eighty three, I won the three A's, and then. Uh, the Olympics would come in at 84, and I thought, what kind of, I took on the now's the time to try the marathon. Because if I scrape into the Olympic team at 10,000, I'm not going to achieve anything. I'll get blown away mm-hmm. in the closing stages. Um, but maybe the marathon I can, I can do better. Um, so I tried to find a race to try it out, try the marathon. Um, and if I was no good, I, I'd still have time to try and get in the tennis mid-team. So I found the Houston Marathon uh, in Texas, which is always run in January. And I thought, well, that gives me time. Um, so I thought, and it was usually one at, at that time in around about two hours 12. And I thought, I'm sure I can run 212. Surely I can run 212.
2: Hmm. I've
1: got to be able to run at least that to have a hope of getting in the team. Um so I decided to go there and um I got in touch with the organisers and said, you know, on the range three eighth ten thousand meter champion, I'd love to come and run my debut um at your marathon in Houston. And they said uh yeah well we'd love to have you but we we can't pay your travelling expenses uh because we have a policy, a strict policy that you've got to have run under 216. To have your traveling expenses paid. Uh, I thought, we can't make any exceptions. That's that's the rule. I haven't run around, so I didn't have time. Um but I looked at they had prize me. I looked at the prize me and I thought, well, i I could finish um in the top twelve and and I would win back my airfare. Hmm. So I I bought a return ticket to uh to Houston, um which cost about the same it cost now back then right um, yeah it was, it was quite a lot of money uh, yeah 700 800 pounds
0: or something like that yeah i'll bet yeah i'll bet yeah um,
1: it was quite a um a bit i thought but well, this is a race i've got to run and and they looked after me really well when i got there um and i ran the race and um and i wanted in, in a sprint finish
0: yeah yeah
1: by a couple of inches
0: yeah, very close. Yeah, I've seen I've seen a couple of things about that. You want it by a thickness of a vest from um Italians, didn't you? Magnani, Man, Man, yeah?
1: Yes, Magnani. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And was there something strange about the finish line? The finish line was in a something strange about that.
1: Um well the finish line was um an ex, a metal expansion grid in the road. It was a very, very clear um yeah. metal uh Line in the road, but um, Magnani and I were sprinting for that finishing line. There was, there was a sharp turn, about 150 yards from the finish. We came around there, saw the finish, and we were sprinting. But I went, and he had a yard on me, then he had two thirds of a yard, and I was catching him a couple of inches at a time. Mm. And this finish line was getting closer and closer. And he was leading, 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 and I and I got level with him, um, a yard or two from the line, and kind kind of dipped, and when it was past the line, I was in front of him, but I wasn't sure, and the, they had been holding out this sponsor's tape across it, and it was kind of across his chest, and he thought he was sure he'd won. And I I wasn't sure. And actually neither was new for about fifteen minutes. He didn't have photo finish on a um a marathon finish line. But the, the organizer of the race had realized when he saw us both sprinting, and he said to him, all the other officials, I want you all standing on the line. This is going to be really close. Um and they all agreed that um, my chest had got the line just before his. But I hadn't led until I hadn't led that race at all until about a foot before the finish line, right? Um, great, and,
0: and it was and, a big, big prize, wasn't it? As well, was it hundred thousand dollars or so? Oh, well,
1: no, the <laughs> that was the story. The, the prize money was twenty thousand dollars. Okay, right. okay, in addition, there was a hundred thousand dollar life insurance policy, okay, which which is a pretty good, you know is somebody who's won a marathon young and healthy um, and yeah, I still haven't claimed it and the, the trouble the trouble is that the company that issued it has is now gone bust so I'm never going to see it
2: <laughs> okay um,
1: but yeah it made big headlines um, yeah the local newspapers were saying that one hundred thousand dollars and a hundred I mean it won twenty thousand dollars which was a lot of money for me at the time oh, wow. and it more than covered my airfare. That yeah, in was a very good investment, but the, the most important thing was, I knew that was the event for me. Straight up, straight after, before I, before I knew whether I'd won or not, I thought this is the event for me. I just knew it. Um, it had just um, I had been, I'd been fairly cautious up to about twenty miles. Um. And and someone else had just taken off at 16 miles. We'd been running in a fairly big group. And those two just took off. And I thought, oh, no, I'm going to let it go. At Ten miles to go. I'm, I'm on course for a decent time. I'm feeling all right. I'm, I'm not going to do it. And I got to 20 miles. And I thought, these guys are slowing down. I'm going to pick it up. And someone else did, came with me. And the two of us ran together. And we picked it up quite a bit and felt all right. And... Um, we Running like that for a couple of miles, we went around the corner, and way in the distance, we saw Magnani and, and I've forgotten the other guy's name. Mm. Um, and we, and we looked at each other and said, We can catch them. And um, we did catch them with about a mile to go, and then ran together and then we had this sprint finish. All uh, right, so I wanted coming from way back. Um, uh, this is definitely the event for me. So yeah. I then prepared for. For the London Marathon, which was the trial,
0: did you have to do London to to, to get to the Olympics? Then that
1: was the... yes. Yeah, um, okay. I, I ran. Uh, two hours eleven fifty four. So you know, I said it normally only two twelve. Um, so that's where I ran. But in there were a stack of good marathon marathoners at the time. Both Hugh Jones and Jeff Smith had already posted good times, under 2.10
2: hmm. and
1: neither of them were going to run London. They were saying, we think that'll get us picked. So basically all the other guys who run for one place um, so I had to, basically I had to beat all the other um, British friends um, and um, I prepared really well for that race uh, and there were there were a couple of Tanzanians Jumari Kanga who was one of the one of the metal favorites mm. was running. And as they always did in those days, they just took off really, really fast. And I had a plan. I thought I could run two hours ten. My training told me I could run two hours ten. And I thought, I think that'll get me in the right in, in the team. And these guys took off. And a lot of my um, competitors for the team went after them. Not they let them go because they were going so fast. But um At halfway, I was on course for um, about 2.10, and I was in the third group. There was a leading group of a few of them, and then there was quite a big group with British contenders, and then I was in the third group. Um, And I just kept going, and it felt so good, because one by one, all these people who had gone too fast in the first half were coming back to me, and I just had... Someone to aim for. Hmm. And I go past and then there was someone else to aim for. And i go past and there was someone else to aim for. And come about um nine, 18, 19 miles, I well, I was running with my club mate, um, Kevin Foster. Foster, yeah, Foster also made We were running together, which helped. And we we caught the leaders, and I think there were four of them at mm-hmm. about 18 or 19 miles. Uh, and I Especially after my experience in Houston, where I caught the leaders coming from way back by um judging my pace, I felt oh I think I would start to think I could win this. Um and Kanga was there, and he just kept doing these bursts. Hmm. Just kept saying, Okay, let him go, he'll come back. And he and he did, he would speed up and slow down. And um once you've done this several times, uh, when he slogan we caught him, I made a move and, and went quite hard and, and got away and, and I got away um completely.
0: Yeah. What's that moment like what's that feeling feeling like? It must be quite exhilarating when you just you're easing away at the front of a marathon and in the back of your head, you, you know you, you know you're gonna win it, don't you? You've well i you you must think that I've got this now I've got this
1: <laughs> and easing away is not the right way <laughs> yeah of course there was nothing easy about it. <laughs> that's was true that's working, true I was working pretty hard that's true um uh, uh, but i I was confident that this was a winning move, but I still had to run six more miles and it and it was i was I was okay but i was I was working, and that work got harder and harder, and the last, I mean, I was, I was well clear. I think I won it by about a, a minute and 40 mm. seconds, mm. but I, I i was working hard. And that last mile, I was having to really dig in, but you're supposed, you're supposed to when you're racing a marathon, um, and I, I sometimes talk to people and I say, what's it like running a marathon like that? And they said, well, you're not really running a marathon. I'm racing a marathon. You know, most people who don't run the marathon, are running to get round. Mm. And it, it it is different when you when it it is you see it entirely as a competitive race. Um but yes, um uh, it went really well and
0: um must have been thrilling to win it then, must have been thrilling to get across it, the line. It
1: was absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um and I've been aiming for um Two hours ten around two nine fifty seven. Mm. Um, I had I had my uncle at the time. He didn't know much about running, and he said um, he was impressed that I was doing well. And I met him a couple of weeks before. And he said, "What do you think you can do?" I said, "I think I have run two hours ten minutes." And he met me afterwards, uh, and he was an engineer. This guy, uh, and he was he just could not get his head around how I could predict how fast I could run. 26 miles, 395 yards within a few seconds.
0: <laughs> that exactly. That's why it takes the sharp end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess by that point you, you've cemented it. You are a marathon runner, a world-class marathon runner at that point.
1: Yes. Yes. Um yes, uh, and it was it was exciting because I'd run two marathons and won them both. Um yeah. and I winning the race and running under 2.10 as I crossed the line I thought they have to pick me to the Olympics was one of my thoughts, obviously winning the race was most of the thought, but in the back of my mind I also thought they have to pick me to the Olympics Um, so it was a very happy day I was also aware that all that those those several years I'd spent Hmm. making myself the best ten k runner I could be had made me better marathon because it gave me the ability, gave me the ability to hold a fast pace. Basically, mm. is what you know. I, I was, I I could run at a high intensity and hold it for a long time, and all my development at ten k had improved that, and that's what you need to be a good marathon runner. Los Angeles is very excited, obviously, realizing. The sort of level of competition I was going to be up against. Um, but I, I, I trained well, I thought a great deal about how I was going to train, but I also did a lot of mental preparation for it. And that involved um, a process where I convinced myself that um, I was I was good at the it was clear I was good at the marathon. But because it was a fairly new event, um, I didn't know how good I could be. And we all have this kind of um, uh, self-awareness of, of what we are and what we're capable of. And I was very aware of that 10,000 metre runner. I, yeah. I, I was a good 10,000 metre runner, but I was never going to be great because I just didn't have the speed. Mm. And I had this this sort of ceiling on what I could achieve at that Um in my my mind, in subconscious mind, but at the marathon, I was able to convince myself that I didn't know where the ceiling was because I'd run two, I hadn't been beaten and it was the event that suited me best and I was uh, was still learning it and I could be better and in the biggest race there is, Olympic Games, I thought, well, why wouldn't I run the best race of my life Hmm. in the biggest race of my life? And I don't know what I can achieve. So I didn't make any commitment to what I was going to do. I didn't say, Charlie, you've got to win a medal or anything like that. I just opened up the possibility in my mind that I didn't know where my limits were in the marathon. So anything might happen. Hmm. And I, I think you can probably only do that once in your life, to be in a position where you have... Uh, you've got a new event. You don't know how good you can be at it, but you've made the Olympic Games or a world chapter or, or a major event at that event. Um, so I found that very exciting, um, and I didn't I didn't put any performance goal on it other than absolute commitment to run the best race of my life,
2: hmm.
1: whatever that was. And I thought, well, if I if I do that, if I Wherever I finish, if I can walk away from the Olympic Games thinking I've run the absolute best race of my entire life, I can't ever be disappointed about it, whatever happens. And I thought, and also, if you if you believe you're going to run the greatest race of your life, and you do, uh, who knows what'll happen? So it was. I, I just saw it, that approach as being entirely beneficial, with no downside. And that was what I kept in my mind all the time. Um, I didn't think about times, I didn't think about who I might beat, who I might not beat. I just thought about I'm going to run the best race of my life on that day,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's, it's what you actually I think I went on to do, yeah. It, it, yeah what what exactly? one, thing I, one thing I was going to ask you about there because it's uh, I guess that was the first Olympics that was unashamedly commercial, it was a big deal, in the Olympics, massive crowds, yeah, you yeah. know jetpack oh, oh, oh. iconic images jetpack guy flying in Carl yep. Lewis, all these huge it was just a big the big show Olympic Games um and it was your first Olympics as well um how do you keep a con- how do you contain the excitement of it because even the and the and the last event is the is the marathon as well so you're you're part of the experience the whole two weeks or so um and looking at that race on on YouTube now, Crowds are massive on the route, you know, from Santa Monica onwards. People were waving the flags, and the, it's a very excitable American crowd. How do you manage to keep a lid on things when you've got to do something as, you know, where you mm. need as dis, much discipline as you in a marathon? Well, you, you,
1: I just had to stay completely focused. Um, it was it was really interesting being in the Olympic Village because when I first got there, um, it was a week before the games had been going for a while. Mm. Um, but I, I arrived um, a week before, maybe six days before my race, and still there were lots and lots of people competing, and it was fairly, uh, there was this sense of um, all these great competitors getting ready to compete. But as each day went by, more and more people had finished their events, and the whole atmosphere in the village turned to everyone being relaxed and partying and um, and being on the... Uh, the very last day when there was hardly anything else on mm. as, it, as my race got closer and closer that whole um, atmosphere changed to party time for most people and I just had to stay utterly focused and it, my focus was so intense it was, it was kind of a problem because I just couldn't think about anything else um, and I, I, I ease off my training a lot in the week coming up to the marathon so I'm not I'm not using up energy, I, I went for some runs, but nothing very really intense. Um, and I, w- I would try to go and uh, watch movies, and I, I couldn't, I would, I would forget what was happening, because my mind would just go back to the race. I'd try and read a book, and I could read one paragraph, and I'd have to read it again, because mm-hmm. my mind just, I couldn't get the race out of my mind. Which made me very nervous, um, but it shut out everything else as well, hmm. um, and um, I, I was just living for that for that day. Um, yeah, and it was it was very intense, and and the the nerves were getting to me quite a bit. And in fact, I um, three days before was it four days before, um, Michael Cloud and Steve Jones, who both were the 10,000 metres he'd finished, were going out of the village one night uh, to a bar. Um, and I said, well, I'll come with you. And I, I went with them, we went to this, this bar. I was there for a few hours and I had two small beers over that time, but spoke to people, uh, was out in this completely different atmosphere and um, it relaxed me quite a lot. Mm. And I, I, it's very really funny. Um, I did get talking. I was single at the time. I did get talking to these two women sitting at the bar. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and um, they said, well, uh, so they said, well, you're not, you don't sound like you're from Los Angeles. I said, no, I'm not a... Um, and uh, so, what are you doing in town? And I said, "Well, I'm here to run the Olympics." And they looked at each other and said, <laughs> "You guys need to come up with a better line than that." Everybody we meet in <laughs> town is telling us the same thing. <laughs> that's absolutely <actually> true story. <laughs> uh,
0: they would have been amazed if they watched TV a few days later. Then, <laughs> yeah, I think they did. But, but that's
1: absolutely true. Um, great. great. Point, I, I felt like. Having a couple of beers, four nights before the race, was going to be far less detrimental than getting more and more nervous, and it did, it did actually uh, take my mind away from it. I was more relaxed. Yeah. I was a bit more relaxed the next day, and I just think that um, you've you've got to get nervous and have some adrenaline, but you can you can completely overdo that. Hmm. Um, you can, uh, you, you end up if you get too nervous too far out, you end up with loads of stress hormones in your body. And, um, instead of just a bit of adrenaline to get you going, it can be really detrimental. Mm. So, being very focused was important, but not going getting too nervous is important as well. And it was kind of, um, mm. balancing that, which is
2: difficult, but
0: yeah, so. yeah. But the race itself, a really exciting race, you, you're really. You were in the league group for a long way. Um, there's more favoured names in there, like D- D- the Australian Dee Costello was the, uh, I think he was a world champion. Well, Sal- Salazar was the big, was the big American favourite, but they dropped off.
1: Yeah, um, um, and Seiko um, from Japan. Seiko, yeah, in the marathon for about four years.
0: Mm, mm.
2: Um,
1: and um, and then there was Carlos Lopez. Yeah. Who was running about his third marathon as well, but but he was. One of he was a double world cross country champion Mm. and um, had set some incredible some of the fastest ever times at ten thousand meters on the track. Um, They were yeah they were absolute stack of top people. They were saying at the time this is one of the best or the best marathon field ever assembled. Mm.
0: Um, And well, when when did it become clear to you you're going to to get a a medal then? Um, when did you when did you start to get really quite hopeful about that? Uh,
1: at the 37 kilometre mark,
0: five kilometres to go. Yeah,
1: that was when it crossed my mind that mm. I'm going to get a medal if I can keep going. Mm. Um, but I, I I I've done the same sort of thing my first two marathons of letting people go because we're going too fast and pulling them back. But I changed that completely in this race. Um, because there were so many good guys there. I thought, I can't let them go. And we we ran along at a, a decent pace for about 10K, and then a couple of the African guys, because they were very fun to do this at the time, just really surged. And I thought, oh, that's crazy going so fast in this heat, because it was very hot. And then I saw De Castella kind of step round someone and go after them. And I said, no, I can't let these people go. So I really had to pick up the pace Mm. for a mile, a mile and a half. And I got onto this leading group of about 12. And then the pace slowed back to probably what we'd been doing before. But there was a gap behind us. Mm. I was in this leading group of about 12 by making that aggressive commitment to not letting them go and go with them. And then that group ran together for a very long way. Um, and I was feeling I was feeling fine um, you know we, we were we were running at a good pace but nothing suicidal but I, I was feeling I was feeling good I was right there in this group and the further it went the further I thought well here I am um, running in the leading group of 10 with all the best marathon, well most of them so I hadn't gone with that um, with that break, and we never saw him again. Um, and it went on for quite a while that, um, just running together. And no one was getting dropped, but, but we, no one was trying to move away either. And it just went on the further it went. I thought, this is really working. This is good. And we got started to approach 20 miles, and I had rehearsed in my mind over and over again that perhaps I would be in the leading group about 20 miles and some point shortly after that someone like D Castella would go to the front and start pushing it and I was just going to that joint and hang on this is what I thought would happen I thought somebody's going to start making a move from this group and I rehearsed mentally that I was going to go with it no matter what hang on and hang on and we went 20 miles, 21 miles and 22 miles. And Di Castella was 10 or 15 yards off the back. Mm. So, and I glanced around and saw that he wasn't going particularly well. And I looked around the group and I thought, he's going to lead this. And I thought, well, there's nobody here that is likely to pick this up. And I had this strange moment um, at about 22 miles when I realized that I I thought I had gone through m- mentally beforehand every possibility that could occur. Um, and I was and I had a kind of a a plan to to counter whatever happened. It had never occurred to me that we'd get to about 22 miles in the Olympic marathon and I would think we aren't going fast enough.
2: Hmm.
1: And it never crossed my mind, and I was going to have to pick it up do what I thought I would follow because little guys there that would definitely, like Seaco, would, um, would outdo me at the finish if, it, if we just carried on like this. And I thought, I'm going to have to do it. And I spent about 400 yards thinking, convincing myself, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to have a go. Um, and I got myself mentally committed to it. Uh, and then I... Jumur Kanga was leading, and I went past him, and I picked it up, and that was that was an extraordinary feeling. Mm. When I went to the front, start, picked up the pace. I could the sun was behind us, and it was fairly low in the sky, so I could actually see shadows of the people behind me. I didn't have to. Right.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and they were, they were quite long because the sun was fairly low, mm. and I could see fewer and fewer shadows as I as I pushed on. Um and I pushed on and I, I I we'd been running about five minutes per mile or four fifty-eight that's sort and I took it down into the four forties, four forty-six, 440, four forty-seven sort of pace, picked up by ten seconds a mile, mm-hmm. which I really felt, but everyone else felt it as well. Um it just felt fantastic to be it, it's 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 that it's that sort of thing that I think probably thousands of runners um, fantasise about when they're out by themselves on a dark winter's night mm-hmm. doing a run.
0: Or and even a park run, that sort of thing. <laughs> park pretending I'm leading the <laughs> and,
1: and I've done it myself loads of times. And there I was, I, I was doing it. And it was an extraordinary feeling. Um, and I, I pressed on, but after a mile or so, it was starting to really burn. And I had a glance round, and there were three other guys with me. There was Lopez, John Tracy, and Joseph and Zao from Kenya. And I thought, and I'm not gonna lead three people to the Olympic Stadium and have them all go past me. I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna tuck in a bit. And so I eased off slightly and um, and Lopez and Tracy came beside me, ran together and then I I kind of tucked in behind the pair of them, but it just felt you go on the same speed, but it just feels slightly easier if, it, if you're mm. uh, right behind somebody. And I thought, right, just just try to gather yourself for you know, a mile or two to try and make a, another move. And then Carlos Lopez glanced behind, and he just changed gear. He just absolutely changed gear, and mm. off he went. And my instinct was go with him. And I changed gear and I went with him and I lasted about a hundred yards. Right. if that. and he was going so fast, I thought, I cannot keep this up. Yeah. So I used up and, and Tracy, John Tracy came um, up beside me. And Lopez is going, he was running in the 4.30s a mile. And Tracy came beside me, we ran together and um, we went past a sign that said 37 kilometers um and i i glanced around and that move that uh, that we'd all made to try yeah try of them as would gone so I, I was sort of equal second and third as we went past 37 kilometers, and that was the moment i thought i'm going to win a medal yeah, yeah. and then immediate and i kind of had this excitement that lasted a couple of seconds and I immediately, because I was still in, in that focused frame of mind, I immediately thought, if he can keep going. So <laughs> shut that idea out. Absolutely shut that idea out of your head. Concentrate, focus. You've got three more miles to run. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and uh, Tracy and I ran side by side. It Apparently we were running about 450 per mile for those last three miles. We were bombing along. Good. Um, but, uh, but Lopez was going further and further away, but we were getting further away from the people behind us.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and we we got close to the, to the stadium. We had to do a sharp right turn onto an approach road. I tried to accelerate around that corner to get him. He did the same thing. We were absolutely side by side. You had to run up here, and then you went into the stadium. And I was thinking about where am I going to try and get away from him when he made his move. And I, I made a mistake there. I should have simply been focusing on him. Mm. I was thinking, I was distracted from what he was doing. I was thinking about when when's the best time to make this move. And he made it, and he jumped in. And he got about 10 yards. <clears throat> and then we turned the sharp corner down the ramp, and he got underneath the stadium on the track. And I thought, I have to catch him before we get on the track, I'll never catch him on the track. Hmm. So I hammered it down this pattern under the tunnel, and coming out onto the track in the stadium, there was this explosion of noise, yeah. but I was also just behind him. Um, and he had to run downhill straight in the fourth lane, then do a lap of the track. So, uh, And I was right behind him. But i I I'd kind of used my last my last everything
0: <laughs> last bullet here <yeah. laughs>
1: and um we went round the bend coming into the back straight of the track he actually he made uh, an effort and and i tried to and nothing happened i, I mean I, I was running fast but yeah. there was no war. um and apparently i ran a, about 68 to 69 seconds for the last 400 meters oh right
0: okay okay
1: which so. up uh, which at the end of a marathon, um, very good, yeah, not slow, but he and he pulled two seconds away from me. Right? Yeah, So I tried to go, and there was, it was like pressing the accelerator, nothing happened. Um, but
0: uh, did did just... did he? So that's after you got the medal. After you got the medal, and it's so, and it's in the, it's in the part of the closing ceremony, isn't it? When you get the medal, yes,
1: yeah, yes. yeah So the was in for the closing ceremony and the marathon... Mm. And then when the marathon finished, the
0: closing ceremony started. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So, what an accomplishment? Did Did you go back to that bar and see those two girls then? <laughs> <laughs> no. A fa- fantastic achievement, and uh, yeah, and, and to get and your first Olympics as well at thirty thirty. Because how old were you then? You're thirty. two. Thirty two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess you're going to appreciate it a lot more at that age, can't you? As well, having been through the graft. Well,
1: I. I, as I said earlier, I committed myself to being a runner when I was sixteen, mm. and it took me another sixteen years to get to the Olympic Games. Uh, for absolutely worth it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely yeah. worth it.
0: Great, great. Okay, and the next year, uh, I'm going to take you to the London Marathon. That was a bit of an epic race you had with Steve Jones, um, which actually turned out to be to be a personal best, didn't it? What yes. What are your memories of that? And what was your... With Steve, a, a, one of your, did, you obviously went out for a beer together, so you were on quite a friendly terms yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd um, uh, been competing uh, against each other for years and years. So, uh, mm. me lived in Wales and I lived in the North East, so it was, I knew him well, and, and yeah, we got on fine. Mm. Um, that race was. I mean, there were no pacemakers in those days. They did. We didn't have pacemakers. Um we just we just ran the race. But then, I'm sure there were no pacemakers. Um but there was a little you know uh beyond halfway there's a leading group of five. Um and Steve Jones picked it up quite noticeably about seventeen or eighteen miles. And I went with him, I was able to stay with him, we got away from the others. Um, and we, we were hammering along, absolutely hammering along. And um, the, the course in those days was, I, I would definitely say, slower than it is now, because you, know, you had to run along Wobbitt High Street, which has got a lot of cobbles on it, and then you had to run past the front of the Tower Hotel, so several sharp bends, and then you had to run across the cobbles in front. Of the, in between the Tower of London and the river, and they were quite rough, and that's at about 23 miles, hmm. where your legs are getting really tight. I always found that my legs were tighter coming out of the cobbles than going in. Hmm. But anyway, we were running side by side. This is another true story you may have heard. When went past the Tower Hotel, underneath the little archway um, where Tower Bridge is overhead, and you go onto the cobbles, and we were side by side, and, and Steve said to me, how do you go to the toilet, those weren't his exact words, but that's what he meant, how do you go to the toilet when you're running? Um, And I said, you'll have to stop, Steve. That is the conversation we had. And then 50, 60 yards later, he disappeared out of my peripheral vision. Uh, And I glanced slightly and I couldn't see him, and I thought, he has stopped. And um, so I tried to pick up the pace a little bit, so we were going fast to start with, I think I'm going to get away from him um and went back on onto the road and i glanced around and and he was right behind me and he told me afterwards he hadn't actually stopped he just slowed down enough to be able to pull his shorts to one side get rid rid of the problem he had (laughs) and clearly he felt a great deal better after that
0: all right felt a lot lighter then yeah yes
1: um and um he uh, he caught me up, and we ran side by side for a bit. Then we went into that tunnel at um, Blackfriars, I think it is, mm. and there was, there was one Welshman in there who shouted, in a strong Welsh accent, go on, Steve, you can get him. And, and it, Steve said afterwards, he kind of inspired him to put another left in, and, and he pulled away from me.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and um, he ran, I think it was 2.8.16, mm-hmm. was that? And I ran 2.8.33, so I'd I knocked nearly a minute and a half off my best time. Um, and um, it, that was an English record, not an English record, that, but it was an English record that stood for 29 years. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but, and it, it put me, um, at the time, I think number eight on the world all-time list. And I used to joke about there uh, was I'd run a time fast enough to be number eight in the world time all time as I'd been beaten by a Welshman. <laughs> um but I mean Steve went on to run considerably faster. Yeah. Um, was, yeah. A, he he was a uh, fantastic, absolutely fantastic distance runner.
0: Tough tough guy, wasn't he? Yeah. 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 So for yourself then, um, next couple of years you did the uh did well did not finish at the Commonwealth Games. Did you did you stop there because you had Chicago coming later in the year and it was a medal was out of reach?
1: No, no, I stopped there because I got cramped in my leg. Ah,
0: okay, okay. Okay. So
1: I was having a bad race from fairly early on. Mm. I think I had some kind of um I, I was absolutely uh covered in salt. I was scraping salt off my skin.
2: Okay.
1: Um, there was some hydration salt balance thing went wrong because I, I just went went to bits and got cramped and um no no i would never have sacrificed a championship race okay from chicago
0: okay okay but you did the, you, you finished third in chicago that was yes so you're still operating at a world-class level weren't you
1: yes yeah i ran i ran a, a a good race there
0: mm, mm. um
2: um
1: yeah, I, I yeah I ran, I ran a good race without being a brilliant race uh, but yeah. I think I was quite nervous about what had happened um in the Commonwealth earlier that year uh, I ran slightly cautiously and Seiko, to think of Seco won that mm. uh, When cleared off around about halfway very fast I thought oh, that's too fast um but he didn't come back um but but yes I ran I ran a good race.
2: Mm. Mm
1: okay um, okay but then started to um get injury problems back that, yeah it blighted me um in my mid-20s and so my preparations were um never went as smoothly as i had i would had a spell from sort of 82 to 85 where i had no injury problems at all and ran my best races and best times decided to come back. I was getting in you know in the mid thirties. Um you can run well in your mid thirties, but you can't recover mm. from efforts and injuries as well as you could when you were younger, I say now. Yeah. Um, um and um I ended up having a, a an operation on my Achilles tendon because that was giving me so much trouble that um that went wrong. The wound got infected. I ended up with a, a hole in my skin through which you could see the Achilles tendon. Oh,
2: um,
1: and, and that was after I'd, um, yeah, I, I had a lot of problems, um, and um, but I still wanted to go back to the Olympics in '88. Yeah. Uh, and uh in in 1983, the year before Los Angeles, I'd won the 3A's 10,000 meters. So that was a fantastic um build-up to the Olympic Marathon. In 1987, the summer of 1987, I spent three months on crutches. So you couldn't really have had a bigger contrast yeah. in, in sort of a long-term preparation. Um <clears throat> I I had to run the London Marathon, but I, I told the selectors. I've had this big injury problem. I'm now over it, but I've missed training. I'll run the London Marathon to show you that I am fit, I'm, I'm uninjured and I'm fit enough to run a marathon, but I can guarantee you that if you select me, I will be considerably fitter by the time of the Olympics than I will be in London. Hmm. It's up to you. So, luckily, I wrote that letter um and i finished was i fifth britain i think i was fifth british athlete
0: okay okay 12
1: something but they selected me on on my past record and what i've told them
0: right okay okay um, which, which put a lot of pressure
1: on me um yeah because i hadn't earned my place in the trial i'd earned my place on my past reputation, and my promise, yeah. I promise that I would be in much better shape come the Olympics in Seoul.
0: But you did, you did back it up, though, didn't you? I mean, you did back it up. Yeah, I mean, sixth place in Seoul was very good, wasn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, i um I look, I've looked back through my training days and and did so with my uh, my mentor and, and advisor, Lindsay, and we don't have the faintest idea how I did that, looking at my training days, Mm. just, you would not have thought, Um, and I think that was again, uh, just mental commitment, Mm.
2: Um,
1: it was one of the, the last few miles of that was one of the, I've, I've, I've dug pretty deep in some races, I don't think I've ever been as deep as that, just to, Keep putting one foot in front of the other in the last few months.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, But yes, I am uh, obviously sixth, and doesn't look anywhere near as good as a bronze medal. But in terms of the performance on the day, I I think that's as good. That's just as good a performance considering. How fit I was at the start of the race and how well prepared mm. I was at the start of the race. To mm. the the performance was as good. The result wasn't because I wasn't in the same shape, but I think the performance is. So yeah, I'm 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 very proud of that performance.
0: Yeah, you can draw a lot of satisfaction given the context of that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did Did you retire straight after that? No, I didn't. I I had
1: I had been definitely thinking about it, but several people said to me. If you finish sixth in the Olympics, of, uh, <laughs> about why wouldn't you keep going? So I was persuaded, and I thought, well, once you give up, you've given up for good. Mm. Uh, and I, I tried to keep going, but I kept getting injured. Um, and um, I did go and run in Japan in the Fukuoka Marathon, and. Big race I've never done before, and I went out there, um, and I, I end and I and I dropped out, and I ended my my marathon running career, sitting on the curb of a street in Japan, waiting for the pickup bus to take me back, mm. which, is, which is so far removed from, <laughs> from the glories of standing on an Olympic podium you can't really sink further than sitting on the curb waiting to be picked up by the bus mm-hmm. um, and that was the end of my yeah, I thought well actually when I really decided was on a training run um, <clears throat> uh, I was it was just a six mile training run from home and I was everything's hilly around here where I live and I was running up a hill and I really struggled to get up this hill and I thought and it just hit me that I am never going to be better in the future than I have been in the past mm-hmm. and the whole purpose of training just evaporated it vanished mm-hmm. Well, there's no point in this. because I was always driven by can I be better, can I be better and I knew for certain I can't and I just thought well I'll just run for fun, I'm not going to compete anymore.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I was about thirty eight by then. Yeah. High time I did. But you don't you don't want to retire from something that you enjoy and you've been very good at when you're still in your thirties, it feels wrong. But for but for sportsmen that's what you have to do. Mm. Yeah. Unless yeah. you unless you're a golfer or something like that.
0: Yeah, luxury, yeah. Um so you've come to the end of the career there. Um did you? Did you still run? Did you still keep 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 active, or was it just a, a clean break from you?
1: Um, I continued to run, but I um, I just did it for pleasure and exercise. Um, and over the years, it just slowly tapered off. I just did less and less, and I, I've reached the point now where I uh, I walk every day. I go for a squat, minimum half an hour 45 50 minutes um, I do that every day but I, I don't go out running I, occasionally if I'm walking through the woods there's nobody about I just burst into a run uh, for a 100 yards or so uh, just because it feels good yeah. but I don't go out for a run anymore um, okay. but I and I, I do a bit of cycling when the in nice weather I really don't like riding a bike in bad weather but I do enjoy it in good weather so I haven't done much of that lately. But um, yeah, uh, walking to what I do now, you don't get injured walking.
0: No, no, true, true, true. Now, you, you've mentioned him a few times, but uh, your mentor, coach Lindsay Dunn um, was a big figure in your life, wasn't he? You lost, yes. him, lost him a couple of years ago. Yes. Could um, you just put into words what, what he meant to you and what his contribution uh, well, it, it, it was? He was a very good friend, um,
1: but also, we. We didn't have the, the, the typical coach-athlete relationship, which he had with a lot of people, where he's a coach, you're an athlete, you do what he says. Hmm. We had a relationship where he advised me a lot, and we'd discuss it. Um, uh, but he he was enormously helpful to me. He, um, luckily, I had told him before he died that I would never have been run around without his input. Um, he was he was very good at saying the right thing at the right time, um, uh, and, and it, he advised me not to go up the marathon when I first suggested it. He was the one who said, "Become the best you can at ten thousand meters burst. Um <clears throat> But in I'll give you one example. Um, he um, we were out for. Um, We're out having a meal somewhere. I'm just talking generally. And he said, and this was after I'd won London, and he said to me, well, you know, going to the Olympics, obviously Di Castello is one of the favourites. But when I won the 3A's 10,000 metres in 83, Di Castello had been in that race and he finished fourth. And he said to me, you know, you beat Di Castello over 10,000 metres, but you're a better man. Than runner mm-hmm. than 10,000 meter run, so there's no reason why you can't beat them all in the marathon. It's absolutely matter of fact. The guy was the world champion at the time. Hmm. And I said to him, Yeah, that makes sense, logically. Um, and, he t- <laughs> and he would say those things to you, and he just put the seed in your mind, is what he was doing. Um, and he, he told me afterwards, after the other, that he said, uh, You know, we had that conversation. And he said to me, I couldn't believe how quickly you just accepted that. <laughs> he said, I said this, this out there thing that you are the big, big Astella over the marathon because you beat him over 10,000 metres. And you, he said to me, he said, "He said, yeah, that makes sense. And logically it did. And I've always been a very logical type of thinker. I didn't actually believe, oh, yeah, I'll easily beat him. But he put the scene in my mind that, well, why can't you beat me? He beat him over 10,000 metres. And he, he, lots of other athletes, his coach will have similar stories. He's just said something very positive to them at the right time hmm. that just puts in their mind that they can achieve more than they perhaps believe they can. And he was he was very good at that, apart from being very, very good at developing training sessions and training sessions. Um, he used to do one with me when I was on the track where i built go the track the walk and I didn't know what I was going to do. Normally, you know exactly what you're going to do. And he would just say, uh, I jog up to the starting line. He'd say, I want you to run 600 meters in such and such a day. Uh, and you'd never know what you're going to do in it. And then he'd, I'd do a few quite hard, fast efforts. And he'd say, and he let me jog for a few seconds. and said, Right, I want you to just run at um, 72 seconds per lap speed till I tell you to stop. And you do a lap and then another lap and third. And you think when did you not know say stop um and he'd do this huge session which was a whole variety of pace he didn't know it was he just had to respond to what he said so it was a bit like being a race. you've got to respond to what's happening and he would always do it that i'd jog up with the line feeling really exhausted and be ready to go and say all oh, right you finished now and he did that. He caught me with that every single time and I would tell him that he wasn't um, a pleasant person in the words I won't use. <laughs> um, and um, uh, very, very good at developing sessions that were just right for you but also very good at saying the right thing at the right time.
2: Yeah. as well as
1: been a, a great guy to uh, be, be your friend.
0: Yeah. I, didn't you guys regularly meet up still on, on Tuesdays for well, we Tuesdays used to be and
1: Harriers training nights, so mm. we started meeting up then. And then, when I stopped competing, we kept meeting on a Tuesday night. Right. And I saw him most Tuesday nights for about forty years.
0: Right. That's great. Okay. Was Brendan Foster with you as well at that time? Um.
1: Originally, yes, yeah. very yeah. occasionally. But Lindsay and I would. Uh, uh, Lindsay was still coaching. Yeah. Loads of people. On a Tuesday night, and then when he finished coaching, um, we'd meet about half seven or eight o'clock, mm. and we'd meet the put and just have, we'd have one beer and some to eat and mm. got the world right,
0: right. Okay, okay. And do you and do you still follow the sport then quite closely?
1: I I have to admit I don't follow it anywhere near as closely as I used to,
2: mm.
1: um, but I I I do still follow it. But I used to be absolutely avid. Um, I'm not so much now um I don't know why um I um I've been disappointed for a long time until just recently that um world marathon standards have <clears throat> have moved on a long way from when I was running, but British marathon standards haven't
0: yeah, because you, you're you're still fifth, aren't you? Fifth. I mean, well, I, you were fourth I, until yeah.
1: Yes, fourth until um, the recent London. Yeah. Till, yes, until London,
2: mm. but
1: I mean that was nearly forty years ago.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? And um, I, I've thought for a long time. I wish people would run faster because it it's healthier for British marathon running. Mm. Um, hopefully. Um, and the idea is, having done that, it, it starts more people running faster. Uh, I hope, because <clears throat> we are um, such a long, long way away from the, the top level now. Mm. Um, uh, 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 so, so all Europeans, so uh, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: yeah.
1: That's a topic for long debate.
0: And what about the top level? What What's your thoughts on I mean, Kip Kipchoge and what what's he he's achieved?
1: Oh, he is an absolutely fantastic runner. He was, he was World 5000 Meter Champion when he was about 19 years old. Mm. I mean, he has got uh, such fantastic short distance speed and a brilliant marathoner and he's been able to put the two together uh, and a brilliant competitor. Um, but things, things have changed. People tell me the new shoes, if you've all sorts of different advantages. I don't know. Um, I, um, <clears throat> I I think I was fortunate um, when I was running that um, the top of marathon running, the top level of marathon running, people came from all over the world, and now they come from a very small part of the world, um, and I think that's not great for the sport. I think that's the way it is. I'm not suggesting I can do anything about it, but I think it was much more interesting when um, I mean that that leading group in the marathon we discussed earlier.
0: Yeah, LA.
1: Yeah, yeah. An Englishman, a uh, Portuguese, uh, an Australian, two from Djibouti, one from Japan, two from Kenya. Yeah. Uh, it was it was all over the world, uh, and it's never like that now in the in the top managements, which i which is a shame it's a shame for um to get people from all over the world interested in it it's it's nice to have someone to root for
2: hmm.
1: uh, and it's um <clears throat> i don't know it's changed things change
0: yeah yeah okay great thanks charlie before we go how would you reflect on your career do you look back now with a, a lot of pride
1: I look back with absolute amazement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, and a, and a lot of pride, yes. I. Um, it, it took me a very long time to reach that level. I, I was always trying to reach the best level I could. I never dreamt it would be that high until I was right on the edge of it. Um, uh, yes... Um, I'd do it all again if I could. Um, and um, I, I enjoyed it enormously.
0: Great, great stuff. Thanks, Charlie. It's been great talking today. I really appreciate your time.
1: Well, I've enjoyed talking to you too.
0: Loved that chat with Charlie. Um, some great anecdotes. particularly enjoyed um, his evocative and um, very detailed memories of L.A. 1984. Uh, If you want to find out more about Charlie, you can have a look at his autobiography, which is called From Last to First. It's worth a read. Uh, He's also uh, very big on nutrition and health uh, from his career as a pharmacist. And uh, he's also got a book out called Stop Feeding Us Lies, which is about um, uh, an alternative suggestions to what the official recommendations are on dietary health. Thanks for listening to Athletics Life
1: Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Sports Social Podcast Network.